Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you meet us here. We thank you that you're with us always. And Lord, we thank you that we're able to come and and meet with you, that that you want relationship with us, Lord. And we're thankful that you continue, regardless of our actions, Lord, that you continue to come after us. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. My name is Jeremy. I'm the small groups pastor here. Glad you are with us this morning. Um, so this was strategic that I would speak today. Since Kentucky lost, David didn't want y'all heckling me when we started the service this morning. So when I did the welcome, so I got to speak today, so y'all couldn't say anything to me. But basketball season starts on Tuesday, so we've moved on. That's, that's all I'm going to say about that this morning. Uh, Again, glad you all are here. This morning, if you have your Bible, you can turn to John 5. We're going to finish up that chapter this morning. We're going to look back first and and recap the last few weeks. It seems like um, each week, we've been the woman at the well, and now we've been in John 5 for a while. So any type of interaction with Jesus and people around water seem to take us a little bit longer uh, than some of the others. So we'll try to, to move through that. So the last few weeks, we've been in, again, like I said, John 5. It starts with Jesus going to Jerusalem for a festival. We don't know what the festival was. We don't know what he was going there for. What we do know is that instead of going to the temple, he went to a pool and he healed a man who had been sick for 38 years. Uh, This man couldn't walk, obviously, and Jesus told the man, get up, pick up your mat, and go. And it's kind of the centerpiece for this entire discourse between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus does this on the Sabbath. Uh, you're not allowed to pick up your, you're not allowed to carry things in public according to Jewish tradition at the time. That violated the Sabbath. And so because he did that, the Pharisees are going to seek out this conversation with Jesus. They're more concerned with the fact that, he can, that he's carrying his mat than they were concerned with the fact that now he's walking and he's never been able to before. Last week we see Jesus... Um, as he engages with this conversation with the Pharisees, we see him assert a couple things. First, he asserts that he is, he is a deity, that he is equal to God, that, he, that him and God are the same. And that would have definitely caused some issues with the, with the Pharisees at the time. But he also acknowledges that he is judge. Uh, and so Jesus is asserting full equality with the Father at this point. And that, that's really where we pick up today. And looking at the Pharisees, you know that they're, this is the starting process towards their desire to kill him. These things he's saying to them are convicting. And in their minds, a lot of ways, it's blasphemous. And so that's where we're going to pick up um, this morning. But before we start with that, before I read scripture, metaphor for today as we're looking at this. I want you to think about this like we're in a courtroom. Because that's basically what's happening. This first section, uh, verses 19 through 31 the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of something, right? They're going after him. And then in 31 through 47, we see Jesus flipping it, and he becomes a prosecutor. He becomes the accuser. He becomes the one that goes after the Pharisees and challenges them from what they believe. So we're going to start with verse 31 and 32. We're going to do this slowly this morning. I apologize if we stay in the, in the scripture a little bit longer than normal, but I want to make sure we understand the setting as we go forward. So, verse 31, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. So, we'll stop there. Just one second, real quickly. Jesus is, at this point, establishing the playing field, right? 
He's establishing the rules of the court, and he's saying, I'm going to play by your rules here. In Deuteronomy 19.15, it'll be up there on the screen in a minute, it says, one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense for he may have, that he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, Je- Jesus' testimony is good enough itself, right? In chapter 8, you'll see that he says that, that I don't, I don't need any witnesses. My testimony is self-authenticating. But in this case, in this discussion, Jesus is saying, I'm going to play by your rules, and because I'm accusing you, I'm going to have support here to, to, to go with me. And we'll see the three people, the three witnesses he calls will be John the Baptist, Moses, and then God the Father in this discussion. But I want to make sure we establish the fact that Jesus has flipped this. When you look at that scripture, can you put it back up there for me, please? When you look at this, it's not that one, the first De- uh, Deuteronomy 19.5. There we go. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or any offense he may be convict- committed. Jesus is going after them, right? He is going, he is pursuing. This is not them trying, to, uh, trying him in this courtroom. He has just stated, I'm accusing you, and here are the witnesses to accuse you. Verse 33. You have sent to John, and he has testified of the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mentioned it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. So here we look at the first witness. The Pharisees had gone to John the Baptist. They went out into the wilderness. They go to him, and they ask him, who is Jesus? Right? And we saw the interaction between Jesus and John the Baptist. And Jesus says that John testified to the truth. Meaning, John told them, this is who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He's the Holy One of God. This is who he is. And the Pharisees, for a time, as they're engaging John, they, they, were, they were in agreement. But obviously, this didn't change their heart. And so, they're going to discount John's testimony. They don't believe John anymore. That's why you, you enjoyed his light for a short time. And Jesus says, that's why he kind of disarms them as he starts. He says, I don't care about John's testimony anyway. Here it is. But I don't really care about human testimony about me. Moving on. Verse 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John for, for, the, work, <clears throat> excuse me, for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form nor does the word dwell in you for you do not believe that the one he, he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. There are scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to, come to me to have life. So this another, in quotes, that Jesus test, it says testifies for him. We know he's talking about the one who sent me. This is also the one he is referred to as father. So we can all conclude that he's talking about God. He doesn't say God testifies for me, but he gives all of the words he'd used up until this point to describe God the Father as sending him. So Jesus is clear. He's talking about God. The problem I have with the passage, it's not necessarily a problem, but the issue that I'm looking at here is like when we see John's testimony, John says God testifies for Jesus, but then he doesn't give us anything, right? There's no moment of testimony that you see in the passage like you'd see in the other Gospels. If you look here at Matthew and Mark, a 
couple instances where God verbally announces that this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. From his baptism to the transfiguration, God in those gospels says, this is my son, in him I'm well pleased, listen to him. It's in your face testimony, but we don't see any of those stories in John. What we do see in John is that in John 1, 33, he says, my spirit remains on him, right? John 3, he says that he gives him the spirit without measure. And so what I, what I see here is that John is telling us it's a continual testimony about who Jesus is. It's not this one moment that you can grab onto and say, this is it. It's this continual action that throughout Jesus' life, God is confirming that his testimony about Jesus. Because his spirit remains on him. And so clearly, the father is testifying on Jesus' behalf. But we see that Jesus continues to mention this other or another. And again, he's referring to the father. But then he goes after the Pharisees in language that they really understand. He says, you've, never, you've not seen him, nor have you heard him. This is, in their mind, they're going to be thinking back to Mount Sinai. God spoke from the mountain. They didn't see his form. They didn't hear. They, they, they heard his voice. They didn't see anything about him. They actually hid their faces, right? Even when Moses came down, they asked Moses, since you've seen the Father, cover your face. And so these, these Israelites in Mount, at Mount Sinai are going to be, they're going to hear God's voice, but they won't see his face. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you never seen his face, and they would have to agree with him. But then he's also going to say, but you've also never heard his voice because you don't listen to me. Jesus says, I am telling you what the Father is saying, and you won't listen to me about this. And so what we see is this accusation that the Pharisees have never, never seen God nor heard his word because Jesus, Jesus' word isn't in them. So from 36, so if you look at verses 36 to verse 40, we see Jesus exposing the unbelief of the Pharisees. All he's doing is showing them, you study the scriptures, right? You look in the word, but you don't know me. You don't know my word. You don't know who I am. You don't know anything about me. And he gives that, it's not a command. When he says, you study the scripture, that's not a command. He's saying, this is what you do, right? This is what, as a Pharisee, they would have had all of scripture, at least the first five books, the Torah, they would have had all of that committed to memory. They would have so you study the scriptures is a statement of fact. It's not a command here. And so he says, you study them, and you think you're going to find, find salvation in them. Right? You think the more I study, the more saved I become. Actually, there's this, the first century Jewish scholar, Rabbi Hillel, said, his actual words, the more, the more study of the law, the more life. So the Jewish leaders of the time, at least the Jewish religious leaders of the time, believed it's the more they engaged in the word, the more they engaged in study, the more saved they became. And they're almost right. You ever had that argument with somebody, it's almost right, there's just enough in there to keep you engaged? I had it with my 10-year-old last night, we were getting ready to watch the Kentucky game, and he put a list of the keys to the win on the wall. The first one is show up. True, right? He's almost right. 
Like that we have to show up doesn't mean we're going to win, but we do have to show up. And it's this partial argument that we see here. Right? Study the scriptures, yes, but it doesn't create salvation. The scriptures point to one who brings salvation. As hard as we try, as much as we love scripture, as much as we love the Bible, this will never save us. This Bible, regardless of how many times or how much time you spend in studying it, will never save us. It's relationship with Jesus. It points to the one that will save us, that does save us, that is saving us. So I'm not up here, don't misunderstand me, I'm not telling you don't read your Bible. What I'm saying is don't worship it. Worship the one that it's pointing to. Worship the one it's writing about, not the words on the page. Because that's what, the, that's what the Pharisees did. That's why there wasn't any life in them. That's why as they studied scripture, they missed Jesus. Because their nose was in the book. And it's obvious at this point that John, the author of this, of this gospel, sees this as an insufficient truth. It's kind of true. It will point us indirectly to salvation, but it, won't be, it is not our salvation. And I think a lot of times for us, being Christians in the South, growing up where we've always been Christian, right? It's a cultural Christianity that exists in our lives where we go to church starting at a young age, going to Sunday school, we learn the scriptures, we learn these things, and we get educated really, really well in what the Bible says. They even start teaching us theology and those type of things, but they, a lot of times they miss the heart. They'll teach us all the words. We'll memorize, the, we'll memorize all the scripture. When I was growing up, we had Bible drill, right? You put your hand on top of the Bible. They call a verse. You flip it out. You got to be the first one to open it up and read it. And I'm a better Christian than you because I can do it faster than you. That's the whole idea, right? And so from this point on, we're going to use, I'm going to say Christian. And when I'm saying Christian or cultural Christian, what I'm talking about are those of us, myself included, that do religious activities, but have very little relationship. So when I use that from this point on, I'm just going to say, you know, Christian. And I'm going to refer to others as those that follow Jesus. So just to clarify where we're going to go from this point on, when I use the term Christian, I'm talking about cultural Christians that check boxes, but aren't necessarily engaged in relationship. Let's read on to verse 41. So this is kind of Jesus calling a timeout in the argument, by the way. We're in court. We're battling it out. Timeout. i got to say this real quick first. <clears throat> Verse 41 says, I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his name, you will accept me. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the, from the only God? Again, this is a timeout, and I'm going to translate this into words that really underst- that I understand completely. Uh, it's Jesus saying, "I don't care what you think, right? I'm playing by your rules. I'm playing by your rules. I'm doing the thing. I've got the, the witnesses. But ultimately, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, "I don't care what you have to say. I don't care what you think. I don't care about any of these things that you're talking about. But I'm still going to prove you wrong by your own rules." So, moving on. Last couple of verses here. Verse 45. But you think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hope, hopes are set. 
If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what I wrote, what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So Jesus returns back. I took the time out. I don't care what you have to say. He returns back to the argument, and he says pretty clearly that the scriptures testify about me. The scriptures say who I am. The very thing that you love most is what is going to accuse you. Moses, who you honor among all other people, he's actually, if he were alive, he would be following me right now, and he would be denouncing you is what Jesus is saying. Because Moses testifies to who Jesus is. If you look again in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, I'm not going to read that, but you look at that, and he's, he's talking about Jesus. He's going to raise up a prophet from among you. And I really like the last part of this. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. That's Moses convicting the Pharisees a few thousand years later, a few hundred years later. That's Moses telling them, telling them, look, you've missed it. This is what Jesus is referring to here. You've missed it. You're denying the prophet that God has raised up. You are accusing yourself, and Moses is accusing yourself. And so the very thing that they love most, which is being the only monotheistic religion in the world, right? They believe in one God when everybody around them believes in multiple gods. They, they hold on to that. That's important to them. They're denying that. And then you have Moses who they hold up, hold up higher than anyone else. And he's accusing them by looking at scripture. And so Jesus is making the, making the statement of because you don't believe Moses, then you don't believe Jesus. Because if you believe this, you would believe him. And so you're convicted by your own words. You're convicted by the thing that you love the most. And so to sum up, this passage, all of chapter 5, what we see is that Jesus is, is telling us that salvation rests solely on him. You can't find salvation anywhere else except for relationship with Jesus. He defended his action on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath day by calling lesser witnesses, John and Moses, but then also calling the ultimate witness and calling God to, to testify on his behalf. And again, like I said earlier, if you look three chapters later, Jesus, Jesus changes the rules of the game on them. In chapter 8, Jesus says, my testimony is sufficient. I don't actually need any other testimony. And so he changes the game. But this is, for me, looking at this, this is Jesus pursuing the Pharisees in relationship. It's not one of a condemning text. It's one of, he's trying to enlighten them. Here's the truth of it. Look at me. I'm right here. Respond to me. And they still reject him. And so we see a specific difference between what it looks like to be a Pharisee and live as a Pharisee and what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus. If you look up here on the chart, the Pharisees exclude people. If you look at Matthew 24, all of it, not all of most of it, it's a big long, that's the convicting passage for the Pharisees, right? But they exclude people. You can't be like them. They're too holy for the rest of us. Right? So they only interact with people who are as holy as them. Jesus, on the other hand, says, love people as I have loved you. I think, it's, I, know, I think it's really cool to look at this and see that the Pharisees during this festival are at the temple, and Jesus is in the streets. Jesus is in the place with the people and loving people while the Pharisees are standing on high, looking down from the temple and judging people. 
The Pharisees put burdens on people. All of those laws, carrying your mat, whatever it happens to be. If you look at that verse 23-4 in Matthew, it's specific that the Pharisees lay these heavy burdens. And Jesus, on the other hand, provides freedom. John 8-36 says, who the Son sets free is free. And Jesus tells us, you're free, and it's a distinct difference between the two. The Pharisees compare the sins of the people. If you look at that parable in, in Luke, the Pharisee says, thank you, God. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those Georgia football fans. <laughs> oh, sorry, those tax collectors. Just kidding. Don't, I'm not, don't get your feelings hurt. But he says, I'm not like them. And he's up there up in front of people. Thank you, God, that I'm not like him. Thank you to God that I don't sin the way he does. And Jesus responds, forgiveness without limit. Seventy times seven, which means all things, all the time, forgive people. Regardless of how much they hurt us, regardless of what they do, regardless of their sins, Jesus says, forgive them. And then last, the Pharisees are arrogant. In that same passage in Luke 18, he talks about, the Pharisee talks about how he fasts and how he gives his tithe and how he is holier than the rest and how he's never broken the law. And Jesus, in Mark, is humble. He says, the Son of Man came to, came to serve, not to be served. And we see a distinct difference between what it looks like to be a Pharisee and what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And I think that we're in a little bit of a disadvantage as southern Christians who have raised, been raised up in church, those Christians, remember the Christians I was talking about earlier, those that check boxes, keep everything all together, look at us, we got it all buttoned up, everybody say, everybody's good. You know, for me, it's like yelling at the kids on the way to church, and as soon as you get out, we're the happiest family in the world. I've been there. Those Christians, with what they're doing, let's be honest, look a lot like a Pharisee. If we're going to evaluate ourselves, a lot of times, because we want to put up this facade of we got it all figured out, we got it all right, I pray, watch how good I pray, right? Watch how often I'm at church. We put up this mask, and we, the mask makes us look like a Pharisee. But when we look at Jesus, and we see Jesus, it looks completely the opposite. It's loving people. It's pursuing people. The question, I woke up with this question in my mind on Friday morning. The question I had to ask myself is, do I live like a Christian or do I live like Jesus? Do I live like a Christian, checking boxes, doing religious activities, or do I live like Jesus who has an intense, intimate relationship with the Father? And if I'm true to myself and if I'm going to evaluate myself truthfully, I have to acknowledge that I don't always live like, a, like I'm following Jesus. More times than not, I fall into the trap of living like a Christian. And so how is it we do this? How do we live like Jesus? Well, we pray, absolutely. We worship, absolutely. We go to church, absolutely. We study scripture, all those things, yes. But if we're doing them without the Holy Spirit... All we're doing is educating ourselves. We're not encountering him. We're just checking a box and we're moving through life to say that we're doing this. And what ends up happening is that we become just like the Pharisees. We become more concerned with how the rules are followed 
than we are about the hearts that are impacted. We become more concerned about theology than we are about loving people. And we put burdens on people. A few years ago, my wife and I, we moved back to Kentucky where I grew up and we're in church there for a couple years and um, it was a traditional church. We went to church and we go to Sunday school and I went into the Sunday school class that was available for adults and I sat next to my dad and my mom and their best friends and all of their friends. There's 40 people in there and I was the youngest in the room by about 30 years. Wasn't really some people who could understand where I was at the time. At the time we had three, three young boys and so it wasn't people there who could understand where I was. And so about eight of us got together and said, let's do this. Let's just have a Bible study after the service is over. We'll meet. There's this little cafe area outside the sanctuary. We'll go there. We'll meet. We'll talk. I'll lead it. I mean, I'm an expert. I just graduated seminary at the time. So y'all just listen to me as we do this, and we'll be great. So we started meeting, and we initially got humbled because people in the group were just going after the Lord. Not because of anything I was doing, but because of everything that God was doing in this group. And week after week, we were pursuing the Lord. We were seeing growth. We had people who were, when they started, would call themselves maybe Christians to the point where they were all in as we're moving through this. And God is working out in, in deep, great ways in this group. We're talking about doing outreach. This one woman, she takes a area of land, plenty of it there, plows it, and then starts planting food and gives the food away that she grows to the homeless. They start going to Haiti on mission trips. It's like we see God just moving and creating an atmosphere of worship that we've never seen before. And then one day as I'm leading the group, there's a guy who comes up and taps me on the shoulder. He's one of the staff members. He pulls me aside and says, hey, you've got to shut your Bible study down. I was like, what are you talking about? He said, well, you didn't apply to the correct committees to get permission to lead a Bible study. And you're not using approved curriculum. I'm really gracious and not very sarcastic. So I said, <laughs> the Bible isn't approved curriculum to study. Like the Bible isn't it. And he was like, well, you have to use the Sunday school book that everybody else is using. You can't use the Bible. And so he shut us down. It was over right there. And part of this, I have to take responsibility. I didn't go through and look through the rules and see how to do this. I just did it. I'd been coming here, Right? So you just do it, like God calls you something, you go do it, and you get the blessing of the church here. And so I didn't follow through all the rules. So I had to take some responsibility for that. But he has to take some responsibility that he was more concerned with us following the rules than he was about the impact these people were having in the church and the impact God was having in their lives. See, it's relationship, it's not the rules. It's pursuing God's heart, not the rules. If we pursue rules, we're like the Pharisees, but if we pursue God's heart, we're like Jesus. And that's what God's calling us to do. That's what he's calling us into day by day, to be more like Jesus, which means stepping into that deep relationship and pursuing him. But sometimes that comes at a cost. To step into relationship with Jesus, I have to admit to all of you standing out there, sitting out there, that I don't have it all together. Right? i got to say here, I, I don't have it all I can't put up. These walls that says, look, I have a good job. Look, my house is good. Look, my kids behave. Look, I go to church every Sunday. Look, I lead a Bible study. I can't put that wall up there for everybody. I've got, to, I've got to turn open and say, look, I'm broken. Because Pharisees want you to think that everything is great, everything is good. 
followers of Jesus say, I'm broken, I need a savior. Here's how I'm broken. Look at me and my brokenness as I show you and point you towards Jesus. It goes back to verse 41. It says, you can't, I don't care what you think, right? Jesus tells them, I don't care what you think. Sorry for all the stories, but a few years ago, I had shingles. You know what shingles are? Not the things that fall off the roof. I had a virus in my eye, right? It was terrible. I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks. I felt like my eye was popping out of my head. Uh, at one point, somebody did come and measure me for a glass eye. That will change your perspective pretty quickly on, on what you're doing. And so I'm sitting in the hospital, going through all that stuff. They finally figure out it's shingles. They give me the medicine. I'm able to go home. And we come home on Saturday, and we go to church on Sunday. And I'm sitting there, and it feels like, little, sorry for the visual, but somebody's sticking a, a knife in the corner of my eye the whole time. That's what it felt like. And so I decided right then, I was like, I'm get to the end of the service. I'm going down for prayer for healing. I got it. This has got to go. God's the only one that can do this. And so David goes through his sermon. He goes through the whole deal. And I'm not 100% sure about what he said at the end. I have all this in my journal. But I'm just going to go ahead and say that he, he I'm going to say this. So this may not be true, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> he said, if you're struggling with any kind of sexual sin, I want you to come down for prayer. I think, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And I was like this. Nope. Sit right back down. <laughs> no chance. I'm going to walk down there. Even though that's not true, I'm not walking down there so everybody in the room thinks it's true. I'm not going to do that. And I don't know if God was going to heal me that day or not, but I know I didn't give him an opportunity to. Because I was scared about what other people think. I was nervous about what other people think. And I didn't want you to think that I was struggling with that sin, and so I missed an opportunity for the Lord. It's not to say he hasn't since then, but I missed that specific opportunity to allow him to work in my life. And so this morning, I've got a couple things to close with. I don't have a prayer point to say, hey, I'm going to leave that open because I don't want you to sit in your seat because you think, everybody will think you're struggling with something. But I do want to challenge you on one thing. Not from a perspective of trying to make you feel guilty or make you think less of yourself. Not that. But I wonder what it would look like if you evaluated yourself and said, am I living like a Christian or am I living like Jesus? Am I living my life following rules? Am I living my life checking boxes or am I living my life radically in relationship with Jesus? Because Checking boxes doesn't lead to life. It actually leads to the opposite. It leads to rules and death and hurting people and all of those type of things. David uses the analogy all the time. When you're squeezed, what comes out of you? If you're squeezed and you're just a rule-based person without the spirit involved, what comes out of you are rules for other people that they can never meet and you never forgive. But if we're pursuing the heart of God and we're in relationship with Jesus... When you get squeezed, what comes out of you is Jesus. And he gets on everybody around you. And people become transformed and people start falling in love with the Lord. And people start seeing people following Jesus. And they say, I don't want to be a Christian. Remember the, the rules. I don't, I'm not saying I want to be someone who's going after Jesus. I want to live radically sold out for Jesus and pursuing his heart, not pursuing rules. And boxes to check. 
The second thing this morning is I want to encourage you is to cultivate a relationship with the Lord. And the one way that you do that, the first way to do that, the first thing to do that is admit that we're broken. It's saying, God, I don't have it all together. I don't have everything all together. My job isn't great even though I make a lot of money. My marriage isn't great even though that I'm at church with them every week. My kids don't always behave. Right? I don't always look this way. I don't always do these things. God, I'm broken and I'm in need of a Savior and I need you to work now. You saved me from hell. Now save me from myself as we pursue you more. More of me to die. Crucify my flesh so that I become more like you. And the only way we can do that is to gather with people to pray for it. So I'm going to ask Bo to come back up. Ministry teams, if you'll come up. The only thing I'm going to ask you to, this morning about prayer, we'll pray for anything. There. Anything. Anything going on in your life. If you're willing to say, I don't have it all together. I don't have it all figured out. Things in my life aren't always great. Come and let us pray for you. If things are perfect, stay seated. But if things, aren't go, if things aren't perfect, come and let these folks pray for you. Let them invite you into deeper relationship with Jesus. Let Jesus work and transform you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you desire relationship with us. We thank you this morning that you desire more of us, that you want to conform us into your image. And God, we thank you that you love us so much that you just didn't save us, but then you gave us a way to come closer to you, that you gave us your spirit, Lord, to connect to our hearts so that we could stay connected to you, that we could abide in you and abide in, in your love, Lord. So this morning, God, we pray all the areas in our lives where we're broken,